But I'm much older than I'm 49 now. Okay, well, let's, um, let's pray. We'll get into the Word, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight that you have given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So, Lord, you know what we need. And as you have given us those things, impart them to us tonight, at least in part, as we look to your word, we open our hearts, our minds. You have our full attention as we study this incredible letter of Paul to the Ephesians and really expressing your heart to ours. Some of us, Lord, have been through this book on countless occasions for many years. Make it fresh in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, last week I, at the beginning, said open up your Bibles to the Grand Canyon of Scripture, which is the book of Ephesians. Uh, Just a little note about the Grand Canyon. It's huge, as you know, if you've ever traveled to northern Arizona. It's between uh, 3 miles and 20 miles wide, 200 miles long. It's a huge hole in the ground. An incredible perspective. And by the way, how you view it is a matter of perspective. One occasion, there were three people standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon. There was an artist, a minister, and a cowboy. And the artist looked at the Grand Canyon and he said, what a beautiful scene to paint. The minister looked at it and said, what an incredible example of the handiwork of God. The cowboy looked in that big hole and said, what a terrible place to lose a cow. (laughs) It is all a matter, matter of perspective. Some of you in the past, perhaps, have gone through the book of Ephesians and you've gotten lost in it. I hope that changes from week to week as we explore it together. Ephesians is what most consider the highest ground in the writings of Paul the Apostle. They consider it the holiest of holies of his writings. An incredible book. Tonight, we're going to look at the first ten verses of chapter 2. We get... Sort of like the view of the Grand Canyon, the panorama of our salvation. We look into the past, we glimpse the present, and we look on into the future of what our salvation holds. You might call the chapter, From the Graveyard to Glory. We start in the graveyard of sin. We end at the throne of the grace of God's glory. Paul begins with a very sour note. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And then there's a change. There's a pivotal point in what we're going to read. And he takes us all the way up to the height. So we start in Death Valley. You were dead. We move from Death Valley into Graceland in these verses. Not Elvis's. Not Elvis's. Thank you. Graceland. But God's Graceland. From the graveyard to God's glory. Verses 1 through 3 explain what we were saved from. Verse 4 to verse 10 explain what we're saved for. If I were asked to paint a picture of my life, if I were to give my testimony through art, I'm not a good artist. But what I would do is select a canvas. And then I would uh, find the blackest possible paint. 
and I would dump the entire can of black paint on the canvas. I'd let it dry and hold it up and say, this is my life. Then I would probably take the whitest paint I could find and I would start in one corner and draw streams of light invading the darkness until finally as more streaks, more paintbrush strokes filled it, I'd just take an entire can of white paint and cover up the black. From darkness into light. Paul paints a black picture of your life before you met Christ. The colors that he chooses in the first three verses are dark, somber, gray, black tones. He takes us to our B.C. days before Christ, gives us an honest appraisal of our lives, and then tells us what happened in spiritual terms. It would be good, and I'm going to read with you the first few verses, but to compare the first three verses with the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1. Physical creation as compared to spiritual creation. I'll take you back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. With that in mind, let's read the spiritual journey. Verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. When we were born in this world, we were D-O-A, dead on arrival, spiritually dead, alienated, separated from God. The unbeliever isn't sick. The unbeliever's dead, Apart from Christ. It's not like, well, they have some problems. They just need to get a cure because they're sick. No, unbelievers are dead. DOA, you are dead in trespasses and sins. The unbeliever doesn't need a personality adjustment. The unbeliever doesn't need a self-help set of books or program. The unbeliever needs to be saved. The unbeliever needs to be saved. You could put a person in the best schools in America and you'll have an educated sinner. You could put that person in a position where he is one of the wealthiest people in America and you'll have a rich sinner. Put a person in a psychotherapy session and you'll have a well-adjusted sinner. But bring that person to the foot of Calvary's cross and you'll have a forgiven sinner. Alive in Christ, you were dead. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, let's go back and get a brief thumbnail sketch of your life and my life. It all started with Adam. Our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam acted as the federal head of the human race. And when Adam sinned and Eve sinned, They began to die at that very moment, physically, emotionally, spiritually. At that moment, there was a separation from God and death occurred at that moment and spread. 
That's what God said. And the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. I want you to keep a marker here and go backwards to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. Romans 5. I want you to look at a few verses. Get the perspective. Romans chapter 5. In verse 12, we'll read just a couple verses. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Now you can follow the progression in those two verses. Sin entered, he said. Then death entered because of sin. So sin entered, death entered, death spread, and then death reigned. That's the progression. Sin entered, death entered, sin spread, or death spread, and then death reigned. You could put all of that together and use one word to describe it. Depravity. That's the theological term for this, the depravity of man. Now, let me tell you what that means. It doesn't mean we're as bad as we can possibly be. We would look at a person and go, no, that person's bad. He's depraved. It doesn't mean you're as bad as you can possibly be. Some of the nicest, sweetest, even hymn-singing, church-going people are still in depravity. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It means you're as bad off as you can be. You see, depravity isn't our view of ourselves. It's God's view of us. If you were to describe your life, if you're not a Christian tonight, you'd probably say, well, I'm not as bad as that. There's other people worse than I am. But depravity means in God's estimation, you're as bad off eternally as you can possibly be. Well, you see, well, say, what is God's estimation of me? Glad you asked. Go back just a a, a page or two to Romans chapter 3, and and you'll see the photograph that God paints. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. Ready for the picture? Here it is. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the peace, the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a desperate picture. Which answers a question. Why is the world the way it is after thousands of years of technology and progress? Why does it seem that we haven't gotten any better morally or socially? Now, a lot of people have tried to answer the question by saying, well, it's the liberal press. Or it's the Democratic Party. Or it's the Republican Party. Or it's the United Nations. No, it's not. It's what's wrong with all of us. It's the sin nature that we all have. When Adam sinned, he constituted or he he generated a constitutional change in his nature and in his character. 
at that moment that he chose to sin against God, he went from innocence to sinfulness. Again, he's the federal head. In what he did, in acting as he acted, he spread sin and death to all mankind. When I was a boy, my dad took me to Jackson Lake, Wyoming, Grand Teton country. And I remember getting up early in the morning. If you've ever been there, it's an incredible sight. Jackson Lake in front of the Grand Tetons on a crisp, clear morning looks like a mirror. And you can't tell the difference between the mountains that you see in the distance and the mountains as reflected on the lake. It's a perfect mirror image. But, you know, every kid looks at that image and thinks of what a flat stone could do on that beautiful, pristine lake. So we remember taking out a stone and skipping it across that virgin glass lake and marring the image of the Grand Tetons. Adam threw one stone into the lake of humanity and marred the image from that moment on. So that sin entered, death entered, death spread, and death reigned. That's our nature. Sometimes I'll play a trick on friends. You say, well, if you're friends, why would you do that? Because we're friends. And if we're at a restaurant and a buddy and I are eating lunch and he gets up and uses the restroom or steps out for a moment, he comes back in, I will have, I don't do it often, but every now and then I'll pour salt into his tea or water and mix it up and not say anything. He has one little drink and <laughs> he hates it. I've ruined his drink and I'll pay for it. But no matter what I do, I can't extract that salt and separate it, at least in my own personal technology. I've ruined it. I've marred it. It can't be drawn out. It is now the nature of the water is changed. The constitution has changed of that water. Now, that's our nature. We are by nature sinners. As it says here, by nature, we are children of wrath, even as others. What that means practically is an unbeliever doesn't understand spiritual things. That's what the Bible says. The natural man, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians, doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. Neither can he discern them because they are spiritually discerned. And so a person who's not a believer will read the Bible and say, I don't get it. I read it. It's all Greek to me. I just can't comprehend it. You're right. You're right. That person, without the Spirit of God opening up the heart, can't get it. They lack the capacity to get it. It would be like telling a corpse, don't you get it? A corpse is insensate, can't feel, can't hear, can't respond, and can't improve his condition. You can't say, lighten up or live a little. You can't live a little. He's dead. There's a separation. The corpse doesn't have the capacity anymore. That's why you need the new birth. You must be born again. Why? Because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Once you're dead, you can't be more dead. Well, he's a worse dead person than I am. He's a worse sinner than I am. If you haven't seen the film Princess Bride, you've got to see it. Do you remember the film? Classic. And I love the scene where Wesley's two friends, the big giant, Andre the Giant, and uh, his other buddy, Inigo Montoya, they bring Wesley to Miracle Max. 
for a miracle chocolate pill. We need a miracle, says Inigo Montoya. Our friend is dead. And Billy Crystal, the miracle Mac, says, Oh, you know so much. Well, I'll have you know your friend isn't all dead. He's only mostly dead. And everyone knows the difference between mostly dead and all dead. Well, we're all dead spiritually. Not mostly dead, not part dead, not I'm a better dead sinner than somebody else. We're all dead. That's our nature. Look at verse 1 again. Who were dead in, one, trespasses, number two, sins. Let's start with the word sins, harmatia, used 173 times in the New Testament. It means to miss the mark. It's the word often translated for sins. It's an archery term that means to fall short of an assigned mark. Here's the idea. You have 20 arrows. I have 20 arrows. I shoot my 20 arrows and all 19 of them miss. But one arrow goes right in the bullseye. I say I hit the bullseye. Yes, but I missed the mark 19 times. I'm a sinner. You shoot every single one into the bullseye. Save the last one. That falls short. You're a sinner. Oh, but I got 19. Right. You're, I'm, a, I'm a better sinner than you are because I missed the mark more times, but you still miss the mark. Somebody else gets 10 out of 10. Somebody else misses all of them. All of them have missed the mark. Second word, trespass. That's a different term. It means to cross a known boundary. Cross a known boundary. This is a deliberate, willful act of disobedience. That's a trespass. Okay, the first time Junior walks across the freshly waxed floor... Let's call that a sin. It was ignorance. But then he is told not to do it, and he gives you that little impish grin and does it anyway. That's a trespass. He knows better. Verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You see the word walked? That's a Bible word that often means the way you live, to order your behavior. The Greek word peripateo, peripateo, to walk around or to walk about or to order your life choices around. One source translates it this way, to meander, browse wandering loosely with no goal or purpose. Wandering loosely, meandering through life. Have you ever gone into a store and ended up buying something you really didn't need to buy? Let's say you had time to kill, you just got paid, you were bored, you go out shopping, you go to your favorite store and you're just browsing. And the salesperson says, can I help you? And you go, no, I'm just browsing. And you end up browsing your way into some items that you purchase that you really don't need and you take them home. Paul says, you used to browse to the things of this world. You were meandering without goal or purpose. And he says, you once walked, ordered your behavior, meandered according to the course of this world. That could be translated weather vane. Weather vane. Whatever way the wind was blowing, you blew with it. You meandered with it. Whatever the new in thing was, whatever the latest fad was, Whatever the world was into, you got caught up and you blew with the wind. You meandered. You wandered. You browsed. 
according to the weather vane of this world. You know, there's an old saying, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to go upstream. And Paul says, that's your life in the past. Among whom, verse 3, that is the sons of disobedience, lumping us all together. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, or one translation says the objects of God's wrath, or another translation, you were under God's wrath, just as others. There's an old fable about a scorpion and a turtle. Scorpions don't swim. Turtles often do. Here's how the fable goes. The turtle said, uh, the scorpion said, I'd like to cross the stream. I'll hop on your back. The turtle said, are you joking? You'll sting me while I'm swimming and I'll drown. Dear turtle, said the scorpion, if I were to sting you, you drown and I'd go down with you. Where's the logic in that? You got a point there, said the turtle. Hop on. Scorpion climbed aboard, and halfway across the river, the scorpion aimed his stinger and gave the turtle everything he had. As both sank, the turtle turned and asked, Do you mind if I ask you something? You said there was no logic in your stinging me. Why'd you do it? It has nothing to do with logic, the drowning scorpion replied. It's just my nature. Good point. Why do we sin? There's no logic in it. It's our nature. We sin by nature and by choice, but we do it by choice because it's our nature. That's why we need redemption. That's why we need a change. That's why what the first Adam blew, the second Adam, Christ, must fix and redeem. Giving us a new nature. If a dog barks, we don't say, it's a dog because it barked. Well, I can bark. No, we say it barked because it was a dog. Its nature is to bark. In the same way, we don't say, well, that person's a sinner. I can tell because he sinned. No, the true answer is he sinned because he's a sinner. That's his nature. And the nature will eventually come out. Okay, that's the black part of the canvas, all right? That's, that's you and I, us, B.C., Verse 4, the two greatest words in the Bible, but God, but God. Now God steps up to the plate, but God, who is rich in mercy. Notice that word, mercy. Because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Those two little words, but God, are two of the most eloquent and inspiring transitions in all of literature. Because you have a black, black, black painting, and the master artist steps forward to intervene, and now light is beginning to enter the corner of that canvas and flood. We see the brilliance of his grace. I would even go so far as to say those two words, but God, constitute the whole gospel. The whole gospel. We're hopeless, but God. We're sinking, but God. Life is bleak and dark, but God. 
And Paul does that. Let me read it to you in Romans 5, verse 7 and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another example. Joseph in the Old Testament, abused by his brothers, sold as a slave to the Midianites. Eventually he went into Egypt You know the story, abused in a prison, went through suffering and grief. Later on, he met his brothers again. And he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. That's the testimony of every Christian. This is who I was before. This is what I used to do and how I used to think. You can fill in the blanks, whatever your behavior was. But God came and intervened. That's our past. Now look at our present again in verse 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's the present. And raised us up together And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He mentions the word mercy. He mentions the word grace. And they are related, but they're different. Now let's step back from the trees and look at the forest. Three words you should know and you should know the meaning. Justice, mercy, grace. Justice means you get what you deserve. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. Grace means you get something you don't deserve. And I'll explain the difference. You're driving down the street. And you're in traffic. Justice is what you want for everybody else on the road. You don't want it for yourself. You want to be able to speed and hope a police doesn't see you. That's honesty. But when somebody cuts you off, you go, where's a cop when you need him? Where's a police officer? That person just disobeyed the law. Oh, Lord, send a policeman quickly in Jesus' name. You want justice. But you want mercy and grace for yourself. So what is the difference between justice, getting what you deserve? Okay, you're driving down the street, you speed, an officer pulls you over, says you were speeding 15 miles over the speed limit, here's a ticket. That's justice. The police officer pulls you over, you've been speeding, and he says, you know what? You've been going 15 miles over the speed limit. You deserve a ticket. I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm going to give you a warning. That's mercy. He's not giving you something you deserve, which is a ticket, punishment. And you go, oh, thank you, officer. Thank you, Lord. What would grace be? I haven't seen this yet, but grace would be where the police officer pulls you over, you deserve a ticket, says you've been going 15 miles over the speed limit, writes you a ticket, gives it to you, and then takes it back and pays the fine himself. (laughs) That would be grace. Now he's giving you something that you don't deserve. Undeserved, merited, or unmerited favor. So justice, grace, and mercy. Justice gives what we deserve. Grace withholds the punishment that is deserved, or mercy does, and grace goes beyond that. Now you would say, as anybody would in thinking this through, how can God be both just 
and merciful at the same time. And if you ask that question, you're thinking, well, it's a good question to ask. How can God be both just and merciful? Because you would say, if God is just, he must punish sin. If God is merciful and doesn't punish sin, then that would negate his justice. And you're right. It would negate his justice. And know this, that whenever God does give mercy, he always punishes sin. That's where the cross comes in. God poured all of the punishment that I deserve and you deserve on his son. He punished sin at the cross so that he could extend to you mercy and grace. At the cross, justice was served. Punishment was paid out. At the cross, mercy was also extended. We don't get the punishment we deserve. He got it. And at the cross, mercy, excuse me, grace was poured out. We get abundant life. We have eternal life and the joys of heaven forever and ever. So when you hear the word mercy from the biblical perspective, it is never grounded in sentiment. It's always grounded in sacrifice. The atoning blood of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. Again, verse 5. I don't want to keep pulling you back there, but, well, I guess I do. Again, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our present position. We're in Christ in heavenly places. We've already covered that in a sense. We've said that that phrase, I think, appears 27 times in Ephesians. That's your address spiritually. You're in Christ. Now, what does that mean practically? Well, um, go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. Let's read the first mention of it. Look at a couple verses together of, uh, in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Go down to verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. Simply stated, Jesus Christ is now above all spiritual principalities, dominions, demonic forces, spiritual authorities, whether angels or whatever. That's where he is. He's there in heavenly places. It means we're in Christ. We are too. We're in that position. It doesn't mean we never get tempted. It doesn't mean we never get hassled. It means that because we're in Christ, listen carefully, we have, if we choose to accept it, victory. Victory over all of those forces and beings. We're not immune. It means power is available. It means we don't have to any longer be the dartboards for the devil that we were. His power doesn't have to control our lives. We're in Christ in heavenly places. Verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. Now do you see where we are? We're in the future. We've talked about our past. Dead, dark. Our present raised up in heavenly places. Now you're dealing with your future. In the ages to come. 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The purpose of God for your life goes far beyond this life into the ages to come. You go, I know, I know, we're all going to heaven, right? Heaven is more than a destination. It is going to be an unveiling, an unfolding experience every moment, I believe. This is what I think he's saying. This is what I know he's saying. It's going to take God all of eternity to demonstrate the fullness of his love to you. That in the ages to come, he might show or demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Your future, your eternity will be the unfolding continual revelation of his love. In Psalm 16, the psalmist declares it in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You know, it's like when people get married and they say, all that I have is yours. And if it's a good, healthy relationship, their life becomes the unfolding of the expression of giving themselves to the other person to meet his or her needs. Verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10. For by grace you have been saved. Now we're, we're getting into the bedrock foundation of the Christian faith, what it really means to be a Christian. For by grace you have been saved. He's encapsulating it all. Through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I've discovered that when it comes to problems in life, the biggest problems are with foundational things. When the foundation isn't good, life isn't good. When the foundation is fixed, it's good. And so God always deals with foundational issues. Here is the foundation of our salvation. Two points are to be made here. Number one, we are Christians solely as a result of God's grace. Solely as a result of God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor. You can't say, well, I've been born into a Christian family. That's wonderful. We applaud you. If you have, that's a wonderful asset to have. Or you can't say, well, I'm a... Christian, because I've been a moral person all my life. Great. We're glad that you have been. No, you are a Christian solely because of God's unmerited, undeserved favor to a dead dude or dudette, whatever the case might be. Solely by God's grace. And number two, because of that, there's no room for bragging. There's no room for boasting. I've heard some testimonies that really are bragamonies. The, the way they describe their past life, they make it so juicy. And you go, that sounds fun. It's almost like they're still proud of it. And they spend so much time talking about how bad it was and making it sound really good. And then, oh, and then I got saved. It's more of a bragamony than it is a testimony. There, there's, no, there's no bragging. And that's one of the reasons we're going to enjoy heaven. Because nobody's going to stand up and brag. We're all going to go, it's him. He did it. He, would, he saved us. It's by his grace and his mercy. Paul did that. Paul gave his testimony. He talked about his background, his pedigree. He was Jewish. He was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, blameless. Then he says, all of those things that were so important to me that I counted gain, I now count as loss, literally 
dung or manure. All of the things that I counted as my assets, I see them now as manure that I might gain or win or know Christ. Not being found in my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. No bragging, no boasting. A Christian is a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And even your faith. Yes, we're saved by grace, it says here, through faith. It's a gift of God. Did you see that? We have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is, that is, the faith is a gift of God. So you can't even brag about your faith. Well, I'm a great man of faith. No, that was a gift. God gave you the gift of faith in order to believe. Listen to this. It comes out of Acts chapter 3. And his name, through faith in his name, made this man strong, whom you now see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness. That's why we're going to love heaven. Because it won't be one long bragging session. It will be a worship session. And Holland, we hope that you're leading worship up there for us. Verse 10, we'll close it off. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the most beautiful sunsets around here, one of the most beautiful sights around here is the sunsets. There's sometimes during the year, there was one night I was driving down toward Newport Beach and the sun was sinking into the ocean and it was just over Catalina Island, purples, yellows, oranges, reds. That's art. Living art. And I think, my dad did that. My dad did that. That's beautiful art. The heavens declare the glory of God, David said. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day they utter their speech. Night unto night they reveal knowledge. That's art. However, if you want to know what God's greatest work of art is, it's not the sunset, it's not Hawaii, it's not the Alps, it's not Rocky Mountain National Park, or whatever landmark you might think of is like the best work of art that God has done. God's best art. Look around. You're it. You are it. It says, you and I are God's workmanship. Poima in the Greek. Work of art. That's what it means. You are God's work of art. It literally means handiwork or carefully spun work of art. God sees you as a priceless work of art. Now, I want to say these aren't the ideas. Don't get in your mind the idea of a doting father loving his child and overlooking his faults, not seeing his faults. No, this is uh, the idea of an all-seeing, all-knowing father who knows all the faults, but knows where that person is going, where the artist is taking that person. If you're not an artist, it's frustrating to watch one. They start with a canvas, but they're looking at a blank canvas, and in their mind's eye, it's a finished product. They can already see the end. They know what they're going to do. They see the end from the beginning. And so they start to work on that painting. To you and I, if you're not an artist, and I'm not, you look at it and say, I don't get it. Big blob of green, big blob of brown, couple spots here and there. And you don't see it. The artist is intent, sees the end from the beginning, 
and knows exactly where that artist wants to take. And then suddenly, as the artist continues, it all appears. It's revealed. You go, oh, I get it. Now I see what he or she had in mind. Ooh, that's beautiful. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says, God has made all things beautiful in his time. And so you're looking at your life perhaps tonight. You don't get it. Another person looks at your life. I don't get it. All they see, all you see, all we see is a blob of green and brown and a few stripes and you don't get it. But eventually where God, the artist, is taking you is somewhere beautiful. Here is poema, poem, work of art, composition. He sees the end from the beginning. You don't get it. Others don't get it. God gets it. That's the handiwork of God. You see the flaws. God sees the potential. You remember that day in the scripture when Jesus called Simon. And he says, I'm changing your name. You're Peter. Rock. Stable. Dependable. Was he? <laughs> no. Did he eventually become that? Oh, yeah. Read his letters. First and second Peter. He said he got it. He grew into his name. Another one, Gideon. Remember when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and said, Hello, you mighty man of valor. Interesting, he was hiding. <laughs> he was a chicken. God gave him a title that he had to grow into. Sometimes we have to grow into our names, grow into our positions in Christ. We're not there yet. But God deems it so, and the artist will take you there. He who has begun a good work in you will continue it, Paul wrote, and complete it until the day of Christ. You see a construction project, and you see cement, and you see wood, and you see wires hanging out. It's not going to stay that way. There's a plan somewhere. And as the plan unfolds and is put together, it's beautiful. You're under construction. You might want to hang a sign around you. Under construction. But you're going somewhere and so am I. Okay. We're his art gallery. It's a wonderful thing. But now let's take it a step further. There is a responsibility that the art has to reflect and represent some feature, some goal, some value system of the artist. Meaning, you can tell a lot about the artist by looking at the art. I, I'll never forget going through the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. Loved it. Learned a lot about the man by looking at his art and studying it carefully that day. When you look at God's art, us, though we're not perfect, though we're under construction, you should be able to tell a lot about the artist. We are to reflect his image, his character, so, when people look at you and hear what you say about God and other people, do they hear love and forgiveness and acceptance? Or do they hear and do they see grudges and hatred and whatever is spewed is because it's from the heart? What kind of image is on the canvas? Now, I want to conclude with a story and then we'll pray and we'll hang out or leave, whatever. 
I'm going to read you a portion of what is one of my favorite stories in history. It's called The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. I'm not going to read it all, but it's a great story. Here's the scene. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. Most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is, what is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy up the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand. You can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. If anyone understands, it ought to be the Christian. Because we are in a process of becoming because we're craftsmen, craftsmanship, workmanship of the great artist. We're becoming. As we close, I want to ask a very simple question. Paul described our past, our present, and our future. Could it be that our past happens to be, for some of you, your present? That our past of being dark and in sin and blinded and dead that's our past some of us some of us that's our present if that present goes unchanged that will be your future we started in death valley we ended in graceland some of you may be still in death valley and you need a transformation you need to become real by god's touch that comes by saying yes to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give that invitation as we pray. Let's, let's bow our heads.